professor videos uh the other night i'm i'm out here in nature in my backyard the other night in my live session i did an audience appreciation night where i asked my patrons and my audience uh, what are some of the subjects you would want me to explore and look into and they came up with a whole slew of fantastic suggestions and i really like them now there's some of them that will be able to be done on my live sessions, but I think I have a, an advantage of being able to produce videos as well. And on this particular subject, I'm going to go ahead and make this a video instead. Uh, one of the issues is what does the Mormon church, meaning the leaders in Salt Lake City, <clears throat> those who are higher inspired than all the rest of us and so they know so much more about all subjects because they just are on a higher order level of truth and reality that is the teaching i was born and raised into all the way up through my mission i've since found that that is completely erroneous but that's another subject for another day i'll, I'll probably touch on that the idea is what does the Mormon church think about the pre-modern DNA found in humans. Now, of course, this gets into the subject of genetics and DNA. Yeah, well, it gets into the subject of evolution also. And this is a wonderful subject to revisit from time to time. Uh, I probably am not going to share a lot that's new to a lot of you. But it will be the combination of sources, the way these sources present this information along with my own reaction and action with these sources that will probably be new and very, very uh, educational, if not quite entertaining, because a deep irony presents itself when we get to this subject. Now, and this is the subject of science versus religion. This is the subject of science in Mormonism with the ironic theme that it is the Mormon scientists, the Mormon scholars at BYU who have gotten it much more correct, much more right than any of the church leaders who are supposed to be on a higher plane of knowledge, a deeper understanding of the world and how it works, the cosmos and how it works, our spirituality. They're supposed to know more about God, angels, men, and devils than anyone else. And on this topic, I will be charitable. And any Mormon scientist who hears me talking, any, any Mormon scientist who watches this particular video, in this video, you'll know I'm speaking the truth when I say 
The Mormon leaders, when it comes to this subject of evolution, are just idiots. There is no better way to explain them. They have not even come close to grasping even the bare essential fundamentals, let alone understanding all of how evolution works. And so what I want to do is I want to share their views. I want to share some of the, what I consider to be really fun speculations by several LDS scholars, and they ruminate on the various uh, historical approaches within Mormonism and, well, and also within Christianity, etc. But I want to start this video on the basis of a now, this is a popularizer approach. Now, I value the popularizers because these are the scientists who have so much knowledge in this subject, and they deign to lower themselves down to John Q. Public to help us grasp what is going on. And so I'm very grateful for the popularizer works from genuine evolutionary scientists, biologists, chemists, physicists, astronomers, etc., whatever area and branch of science that they're in. This one is by Jerry A. Coyne. It's Viking Press published it, Faith versus Fact. The publication date was uh, 20, let's see, where is it? Oh no, I cannot find it. 2015. So it's not that old. It's not that... Uh, I have talked on this exact subject before, but I'm going to share some other connections with the Mormon point of view rather than... When I, when I was sharing this information, I was an atheist, and now I consider myself a, uh, a seeker of more truth than night, light and knowledge that Father promised. Let me read his approach to Adam and Eve and how evolution has talked about this. Now, before I begin, let me say, Bruce R. McConkie, now love him or hate him, and I really don't like him. Uh, I don't think I hate him, but no, he was way too fundamentalist uh, for my taste. He got it right, though when he noted in the seven deadly hearsays that evolution really does make the gospel troublesome because it does away with a literal fall of Adam and Eve. And therefore, there is no necessity for a redeemer to redeem mankind in our fallen nature. McConkie got it right when he saw the threat of evolution on the Mormon themes and doctrines. There's no question about that. But let's explore what the evolutionist Jerry Coyne says. Oh, here comes a neighbor. He'll pass by. I think I'll stop reading for just a quick second. Hey, neighbor. Ooh, and he's in a RAV4. How you doing? Thank you for not kicking up so much dust. He was driving nice. That's good. I love my neighbors here. They're awesome. And this is on page 125 of Faith versus Fact. And the central lesson of Christianity is that sin was brought into the world by, guess what? The transgression of Adam and Eve, of course. The primal couple. And it is expiated 
by the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, whose acceptance as Savior removes the taint of sin. So you can hardly call yourself a Christian without accepting these claims. He's correct. Yeah. So the idea that sin arrived with Adam and Eve's transgression originated in the epistles of Paul, and this was transformed into dogma by Augustine and Irenaeus several centuries later, but none of these writers doubted the historical existence of the primal couple. So Coyne's approach here from the science of evolution is going to have a unique twist here, and this is fascinating. What could be clearer than Paul's declaration, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, as we've learned, Augustine, often praised for seeing Genesis as an allegory, he actually regarded Adam and Eve as historical figures. Finally, the Catechism of the Catholic Church affirms a first historical couple. The account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language, but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of mankind. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault freely committed by our first parents. Well, there's not much wiggle room there. <laughs> and Americans as a whole take this doctrine literally as well. In a 2010 poll, 60% of Americans agreed with the proposition that all people are descendants of one man and one woman, Adam and Eve. So science has come about and completely falsified the idea of a historic Adam and Eve, and on two grounds. First, our species wasn't poofed into being by a sudden act of creation. We know beyond reasonable doubt that we evolved from a common ancestor with modern chimps, an ancestor living around six million years ago. And modern human traits, which include our brain and genetically determined behaviors, evolved gradually. Further, there were many species of proto-humans, these are also called hominins, that branched off. And in the branching off, they died out before the ancestors of our own species remained as the last branch. As many as four or five species of human-like primates may have lived at the same time. Very interesting here. Now we begin to get a feel for the nuance of the actual evidence we have physically about human evolution. And it's not what we've been taught in church at all. Some of these extinct groups, like the Neanderthals, had culture and big brains and were modern humans in all but name. Theologians then are forced to square the sudden incursion of sin with the gradual evolution of humans from earlier primates. More importantly, evolutionary geneticists now know that the human population could never have been as small as two people, two individuals, much less the eight who rode out the flood on Noah's Ark. Since 
sequencing of human genomes became possible on a large scale, and this just within my lifetime. This is very remarkable. We can now back-calculate from the observed genetic diversity in our own species to find out roughly when different forms of human genes diverged from one another, and how many forms of a given gene existed at a given time. This is a really important thing here. I, I had never looked at it this way. Because each human has two copies of each gene, this gives us a minimum estimate of how many humans existed at a given time. We've also been able to use genes to trace the path of ancient human populations as they spread from Africa throughout the world. The genetic evidence tells us several things. First, the genes in all modern humans diverged from one another a long time ago long before six to 10,000 years estimated from Scripture. We can, for example, trace all the Y chromosomes of existing males back to a single man who lived between 120,000 and 340,000 years ago. This individual is also called Y chromosome Adam. Yeah, that's a bit misleading, to be sure, because although all the Y chromosomes of modern humans descend from this one individual, the rest of our genome descends from a multitude of different ancestors who lived at various times. And these times range from 10,000 to about 4 million years ago. Wow, our genome testifies to literally hundreds of Adams and Eves who lived at different times, a result of the fact that different parts of our own DNA were inherited differently based on the vagaries of reproduction and the random division of genes when sperm and eggs are formed. So the observations that different parts of our genomes have different ages, some going back millions of years, and that they come from different ancestors, well, this information completely dispelled the biblical data of human origins and the idea that all of our DNA are bequeathed to us from just a single primal couple. So the evidence is even stronger, coin notes, for we can also back calculate from DNA sequences the size of human populations at different times in the past. And we know that when our ancestors left Africa between 100,000 and 60,000 years ago to colonize the world, the size of the migrating group dropped to a minimum of 2,250 individuals. And that's an underestimate. The population that remained in Africa stayed larger and their minimum is about 10,000 people. So the total number of ancestors of modern humans then was not two, but over 12,000 individuals. This is a very strong scientific refutation of the Adam and Eve scenario. 
And it puts Christians in a tight spot, and I would add Mormons. If there were no Adam and Eve, then whence original sin? There's the crux right there, isn't it? Yeah, truly. And if there was no original sin transmitted to Adam's descendants, then, of course, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection expiated nothing. It was a solution without a problem. In other words, Jesus died for a metaphor. And finally, on page 130 and 131, I want to... Uh, I want to end with this from Coin and get into another source. The most sophisticated attempt to reconcile Adam and Eve with the data of genetics is from the biblical scholar Peter Enns. Now, he's an evangelical Christian. He's accepting that the Bible was a historical document assembled by humans and yet inspired by God. Uh, Enns simply sees Genesis as a metaphor for the creation of the Israelite nation. But he accepts a literal crucifixion and resurrection, as well as their redemptive effects. As for Paul's absolute conviction that Adam and Eve existed, Enns hypothesizes that Paul was simply casting about for an Old Testament explanation for the decline of humanity that arrived with sin. As Enns argues, one can believe that Paul is correct theologically and historically about the problem of sin and death and the solution that God provides in Christ, without also needing to believe that his assumptions about human origins are accurate. The need for a Savior does not require a historical Adam. While that may appeal to more liberal sentiments, it's still a made-up reconciliation that faces big theological problems as you can probably tell, right? <laughs> so if sin is merely our evolutionary tendency to be greedy or aggressive or xenophobic, then God, who either foresaw or else he directed evolution, becomes responsible for sin. See, that's unpalatable to theists who believe that sin results from our own free choice. Yeah, so so the theologians have not helped solve this problem, in other words, is what has happened. And Paul, as well as many other famous theologians, is seen as wrong in some of his beliefs, but right about other of his beliefs. And now we get into the problem of cherry-picking. Yeah. This becomes obvious when Enns argues that Paul's handling of Adam is appropriating an ancient story in order to address pressing concerns of the moment. Well, that has no bearing whatever on the truth of the gospel. But it surely does. For the truth of the gospel, presumably the divinity, the crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus is supported by precisely the same kind of evidence that once buttressed Adam and Eve. On what basis can we reject one story and yet accept the other one? Yeah, like other attempts to save the Christian doctrine by doing an end run around science, even the most sophisticated attempt seems like a desperate move fueled by confirmation bias. Now I have another source that will, this is a fantastic approach against the Christian view, but now we bring in the Mormon view, which is just Christianity on steroids. 
the Mormons have the same problem. They just have a little bit of a unique way to supposedly circumvent this issue. In the text by Trent D. Stephens and D. Jeffrey Meldrum, Evolution and Mormonism, A Quest for Understanding. This was one of the better attempts at coming to grips with this theme of Mormonism and the obvious battle that it has with evolution, which battle is mostly from the church leaders' points of view. The Mormon scientists, even at the beginning of the establishment of the Brigham Young University Academy and the Brigham Young University, it was not argued against by the scientists. It was always the church leaders who seemed to have the issue with evolution. And uh, I want to share, this is in their introduction, page XVI and XVII, where they're talking about in one of only two official first presidency statements concerning the origin of Adam, President Joseph F. Smith and his counselor stated in November 1909, the church declares man to be the direct and lineal offspring of deity. Man is a child of God formed in the divine image and endowed with divine attributes. This statement, which remains the official church position, is reprinted in this book's appendix. This statement has been interpreted by some members of the church to mean that it is our physical bodies as well as our spirit bodies that are the lineal offspring of deity. Well, because the 1909 First Presidency Statement stimulated several high priest quorums to wonder, <laughs> that's so typical, isn't it? In just what manner did the mortal bodies of Adam and Eve come into existence on this earth then? See, an editorial in the Improvement Era entitled Priesthood Quorum's Table addressed the issue in April 1910, whether the mortal bodies of man evolved in natural processes to present perfection. Through the direction and power of God, it stated whether the first parents of our generation, Adam and Eve, were transplanted from another sphere with immortal tabernacles, whether they were born here in mortality, or, as other mortals have been, are questions not fully answered in the revealed Word of God. The entire editorial is also reprinted in this appendix so that we can see the full context of it. Well, even though many people continue to be debating the issue of Adam's origin, the Improvement Era editorial clearly allows for the possibility of a natural process employed by God in the physical creation of humankind. And then on page, I'm going to skip over to page 10, where they have another very interesting idea. We accept the First Presidency statements, as reiterated in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, that human beings are the sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. We agree that we were created in the image of God. We also agree with the 1931 First Presidency Statement that geology and biology and archaeology and anthropology are best left to scientists. Beyond these official statements, however, we find still unanswered questions and differing opinions among church members concerning organic evolution. 
For example, whereas we all agree that our spirits are the offspring of deity, many believe that Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, and that for the remainder of God's children, that is all the rest of us, uh, our physical bodies are prepared by natural processes. However, others insist that the natural body is also the direct offspring, or a what they term a special creation of deity. Some Mormons propose that the natural body could have been prepared through the processes of evolution. Others insist that the church opposes the theory of evolution, period. No other question asked, right? <laughs> Although there's never been an official statement to that effect. Most of the statements that have been made concerning human origins, well, these have been the forms of opinions and personal interpretations of scriptures, of course, and only rarely have official statements been made by the First Presidency defining the position of the church. And I believe that's kind of problematic because they love to present the image that they know so much more than all the rest of us because of their special influence with the creator of the universe. So you would think that they would be able to have better answers than all the rest of us. But apparently they can't and don't. They're just giving their own personal interpretations. They refuse to give an official interpretation. I personally find that very problematic, especially based on the fact that Joseph Smith, if he had any questions about anything, he could simply ask and he would receive a revelation, bing bada boom, and he could put it right in the Doctrine and Covenants. Apparently that can't happen today though. Jesus has stopped talking and one has to wonder why. Now this is one of the more remarkable things. Oh, I gotta get off this rock. This rock is so uncomfortable. This is one of the most remarkable ideas that I, I have never heard of this until I read this book. And so I'm really anxious to share it with you. It's on page 11 and 12 of this book, Evolution of Mormonism, by Stephens and Meldrum. Richard T. Wooten spent much of his career as a social scientist dealing with the issues of science and religion. As part of his research, he conducted two major surveys in 1955 and 1992, and he solicits response to a number of questions regarding science and religion from Utah-born or Utah-educated LDS scientists. Dr. Wooten concluded his study by stating that Mormonism was in a class by itself as a science-supportive religion. Now, this is what caught my attention. You wouldn't have expected that, would you? Let's see what he found. The results of the 1992 study of scientist graduates of Utah universities confirmed every part of the 1955 study. The Utah Mormon culture is still the most highly productive of scientists, first place among the states, leading by 21% the second place. The second place state was Idaho, which also is the second largest LDS population. The LDS scientists responding to Dr. Wooten's survey cited many distinctive religious doctrines which encourage mental development. They showed that it produced the kind of value system the family solidity and healthy living style that are known to facilitate achievement. Of the 65% responding to the survey, now that's a big response, so that was nice. Approximately 1,400 scientists, 
282 of whom were biologists, 83% of them had no difficulty harmonizing religion and science, and an additional 15% believed the two could be at least partially harmonized. In responding to the survey statement that man's body did not evolve in any fashion from simpler species and is not biologically related to them, only one biologist out of 282 of them agreed. Dr. Wooten continued, while most Utah biologists are strong Mormons, we found almost none who believe in special creation as against evolution. The LDS scientists who supported the notion of a special creation, 12% of the total surveyed, were engineers, and others whose fields have almost nothing to do with knowledge of the facts supporting evolution. So Dr. Wooten stated, we suppose that almost everyone learns to reason well in his or her own field, but some seem to slight the rules of re reason when forming opinions about conclusions in someone else's field. The belief among active LDS scientists that evolution was apparently God's method of creating species was close to 100% true of those in the fields that study the earth and its creatures. It was also true of many Mormon scientists, no matter what their field of studies. Now that's quite remarkable and that is an astonishing anomaly when we're able to see and compare the difference between Mormon educated scientists and the supposed Holy Ghost inspired church leaders who are nowhere near this conclusion. Something's wrong in Mormonism when it comes to putative inspiration from the Holy Ghost. It's not telling the Mormon scientists the same thing that it's telling the Mormon leaders. You kind of have to ask why, don't you? I certainly do. After exploring several of the evolutionary evidences that they have found in the science of biology, they say on page 30 that the data overwhelmingly indicate that humans are not unique but we actually are related to the other animals. In fact, this similarity is so close that at the cellular level and below, humans are largely indistinguishable from other mammals. That's how closely related we are. There is no scientific evidence supporting the notion that humans are physically unique. In spite of these data, many people continue to claim in the name of religion that humans are physically unique. As Brother Eyring pointed out, some members' determination to employ indefensible and unsound arguments to defend what they incorrectly believe to be church positions is not helpful to the church. Indeed, I would propose the leaders are the biggest problem. Eyring didn't dare say that because he was employed by the church. But I'm not, so I don't have to worry about my paycheck, right? In defeat, it may be mistakenly supposed that the gospel is at fault. No, I'm not faulting the gospel. I'm faulting the claims of the Mormon leaders who say we know, when in fact 
they keep spouting false information on this subject of science versus religion. The really weird thing is, <laughs> this is what uh, caught me off guard as an apologist. The more I analyzed the scriptures, and especially the biblical uh, aspects of the Hebrew and the Greek, when I was beginning to learn how to translate the scriptures, uh, what I was hoping to be would be more accurate. I discovered that the brethren's understanding of the doctrine doesn't jive with the scriptures either, let alone their science. Now, it's really remarkable because we know who the problematic prophets were. Joseph Fielding Smith. Uh, David O. McKay was one of the better ones. Joseph Fielding Smith was horrendous. His son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie, was just... He he was he was one of the worst things that happened to Mormonism when it comes to the science versus religion. Uh, Boyd K. Packer did no good either. Uh, he was a flippant idiot, and his arguments were so unsound as to be laughable. Uh, Dallin Oaks, who should know better now. The interesting thing is the current prophet, Russell Nelson. He has not come out on this subject of evolution much at all that I'm aware of. Now, I, I'm willing to be corrected, but he was a heart surgeon. He knows the science. There can be no question. Russell Nelson, the current prophet, he knows the science. He knows evolution has occurred and continues to do so. He understands that. My suspicion is that's why he is so silent on it. Because the literal interpretation of the scripture which pretty much all of his former colleagues, the former prophets before him, stuck with. That is where the problem, that's where the friction lies, is this, this literal aspect of taking these ancient Hebrews who didn't even know cells existed, they knew no biological information whatsoever, and yet they were pontificating on things that they could not possibly have understood. And now we moderns are taking their rather pre-scientific view literally, and it really does cause some friction. That is one reason why I really like Stephen's and Meldrum's book on evolution and Mormonism, because they're bringing out some potential possibilities, but they're also showing where the problem lies. And on page 56, they really hit the nail on the head. In 1998, Joseph Fielding McConkie, a professor of religion at BYU and son of Bruce R. McConkie, published a book entitled Answers, Straightforward Answers to Tough Gospel Questions. One chapter of the book addressed issues of science and religion. So, Brother McConkie stated that there are irreconcilable differences between the theory of organic evolution and the doctrine of the fall. Now, in this he is correct. He really did get that part right. There really are irreconcilable differences. He said that the theory of evolution, and even if we go to the ground of theistic evolution, that is, God uses evolution as his way of creation, they call this theistic evolution, is at odds both with Scripture and with an official declaration of the First Presidency on the Origin of Man. Now, that was that is such ancient history that it's ludicrous 
for McConkie Jr. to be using that as the basis for any kind of information. <laughs> and yet that's all he's got. Because the leaders have been very, very silent on this issue for the most part. Some of the individuals have spoken out a little bit. But as an official church, uh-uh. Nope, not going to touch it with a 200-foot pole. Not this one. Well, Brother McConkie's book embraces a literal interpretation of the creation, which includes concepts of a young earth, a paradisical creation, and no death before the fall. It is clear that the official declarations of the First Presidency on the origin of humankind, let alone on evolution generally, are extremely circumspect, oh, I should say so, as so circumspect as to be totally useless, is my view. And it's limited primarily to the spiritual heritage of mankind and the authorship of creation. Individual commentaries and expressions of opinion have varied considerably through the years. However, in our own experience, a formal solicitation for the official position of the Church on the topic evoked a reference to the 1909 statement and to entries in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. Now, that's a 1990 source, so that's bringing it a little bit more up to date than the ridiculously 1909-old comment. It is important to remember that this initial First Presidency statement, and it is the official pronouncement today, so far as these guys know, and so far as I know, I haven't heard of anything uh, new being upgraded and updated, even though evolution has continued to advance with its... Uh, ideas and evidences. It's stronger now than it's ever been, man. It is breathtaking. So, this official pronouncement today says, declares man to be the direct and lineal offspring of deity. So, some members of the church continue to interpret this statement to refer to our physical bodies. And yet, in, 19, in 1910, there was a clarifying statement of this. See, though, the members today will read the 1909, but they won't read what was said a year later, right? And, of course, the church isn't going to bother telling them that either. Uh, whether the mortal bodies of man evolved in natural processes to present perfection through the direction and power of God, whether the first parents were transplanted from another sphere with immortal tabernacles, whether they were born here in mortality, are questions not fully answered in the revealed word of God. That was the clarifying statement. Other inquiries have been answered with only an abbreviated version of the Encyclopedia of Mormonism's entry on evolution under the Encyclopedia entry Origin of Man. And amazingly, guess who, who gave this subject? John L. Sorensen, the Mesoamerican Book of Mormon scholar. What on earth does he know about biological evolution? That, that just struck me as so blatantly weird. What is a Book of Mormon scholar doing entering an encyclopedia article on evolution? That's weird. Uh, I got news for you. That's weird. So here's what Sorensen said. Official statements indicate that the details of how Adam became the first man are considered not to have been revealed clearly enough to settle questions of process. 
and then the first presidency's council in 1931 was leave geology, biology, archaeology, and anthropology to scientific research. Yeah, and don't they should have included and don't listen to us because we don't know diddly spit. <laughs> I've got a reference to uh from uh. Boyd K. Packer that I'll read to you here in a few minutes, but first I want to read this particular statement on page 102 because this absolutely uh, shows how far off base, I mean, Packer hasn't got a clue about reality in any manner. They say on page 102, the modern molecular data, and this has accumulated over the past 25 years alone, overwhelmingly support the notion that we are genetically related to other animals and completely contradict the idea that we are genetically unique. As with an earth-centered universe, the idea that because we are spirit children of God and are created in his image, our physical body should be unique is an error that is not supported by the data. In fact, there are far more data supporting the concept that humans are related to other animals than to support the idea that Earth is not the center of the universe. Wow, that's powerful compared to what Boyd K. Packer has said. And I believe these guys have that statement. Hang on, let me look. If they don't, someone else that I have does. Um... Uh, James E. Talmadge, he talks about Talmadge. Oh, and then this is some of the interpretations of the scriptures that I thought were extremely interesting. Okay, so no, they don't have the information on Boyd K. Packer. But they've got other materials that I definitely want to share with you. All right, I think I've got that camera adjusted. Yeah, barely. Oh, well. <laughs> you don't want to look at my ugly mug anyway. You want to see the beautiful scenery behind me, right? Uh, Stephens and Meldrum, on another page, uh, this is page 109. What do the molecular data reveal about humans' closest relatives in the animal kingdom? The question of which, if any, African apes share a common ancestor with humans has also been investigated using DNA sequencing. I hope that wind doesn't bother you too much. I apologize if it's blowing too hard. It's not my fault, though. Take it up with God. Mounting evidence indicates that humans and chimpanzees are the most closely related. And these findings have independently borne out the conclusions of early comparative anatomists that humans are more closely related to the chimp and the gorilla than either the chimp or gorilla are related to the third great ape, the orangutan. When the DNA sequences of two humans selected at random are compared... They may differ on average by as much as one out of every 200 nucleotides. In other words, they're about 99.5% similar. If the DNA sequences of a human and a chimpanzee are compared... Oh, here comes my neighbor. Hold on, I got a wave at him. Hey, neighbor. Thank you for driving slow so to keep the dust down. Appreciate it. Good people around here, man. They're very polite. I love it. So if the DNA sequences of a human and a chimpanzee are compared, 1.4 out of every 100 nucleotides are found to be different, about 98.5% similar. 
So human DNA is 97% similar to that of orangutans, and is 92.5% similar to that of the rhesus monkeys. Likewise, chimpanzees are only 92.5% similar to rhesus monkeys, but they are 97% similar to orangutans. Animals that are more distant related have even greater DNA sequence differences. Now, these differences can be seen not only in the DNA, but in proteins also. Proteins are made from a DNA template by a process which we will describe later. Because of this relationship, amino acids, they are carbon-containing acids that have an amine group, NH2, and a side group, ranges from a single hydrogen atom to larger, more complex group of atoms. The sequences in proteins, what they're trying to get to, can be used for comparisons across species. And that's why this is so important. We can compare the human protein cytochrome C amino acid sequence to that of any other plant or animal. Understand this. We find that all 100 amino acids in human cytochrome C are identical to those of the chimpanzee. 99% are identical to those of monkeys. 90% to those of a dog. 88% to a horse. 85% to a chicken. 83% to a snake. 82% to a frog, 79% to a fish, 72% to a fly, 57% <laughs> to wheat, and 52% to yeast. Now the point of this list, it could go on confirming the validity of the hypothesis that more closely related plants and animals have more closely related amino acid sequences and that more distantly related plants and animals have less similar sequences. So even though there are up to 50% differences in amino acid sequences in cytochrome C, these cytochromes from one plant or animal can substitute for those of another. We are also interrelated not only to all of the animals on this planet, but all of the plants as well. Maybe not as closely, but the relationship is there. It doesn't matter which plant. Whether it's the sagebrush, I don't know if you can see the sagebrush I'm pulling up. Whether it's the sagebrush, whether it's the wild wheat, whether it's the trees, whether it's the pines, the quake and aspen, it doesn't matter which kind of life, we are all related. That is amazing. That is one of the items I wanted to truly share with you today in this video. On page 117, here's what else they say. The witnesses have testified 
The evidence has been presented. The merits of the case rest upon the accumulated data. The fingerprint of our common biological heritage with animals appears self-evident now. The same techniques employed in courts of law to settle disputes of paternity of children or to research the history of genetic diseases in family genealogies demonstrate our close relations to the rest of nature. All life on this planet we are genetically related to that is phenomenal their validity as tools to elucidate genealogical relationships is unquestioned why would their application or elucidation relationships between animal species be disputed exactly and yet the only ones disputing it are the so-called Holy Ghost-inspired Mormon leaders who really, truly just lack the knowledge. And their inspiration is not filling in the holes in their heads either. Their brains have fallen out, so to speak. It's astonishing, isn't it? And this part really intrigued me, and this will be the last I share here. I'll call this part one, uh, because I'm not going to have time to go through all my sources. I'll do this in a three-part series, because it's such an incredible, uh, interesting range of the way that uh, all of this is brought about through various different LDS scholars and authors. So on page 133, they're saying, Likewise, our bodies are said to be hallowed by the spirits within us, not by the flesh of which we're composed. They're still arguing about uh, the importance of the spirit being from deity, and therefore, uh, so should our body. There are some people who actually do think that, right? And, and that's an incorrect interpretation, according to Meldrum and Stevens. James E. Talmud said concerning this issue in speaking of the origin of man, we generally refer to the creation of man's body and of all the mistakes that man has made concerning himself. One of the greatest and gravest is that of mistaking the body for the man. <laughs> That's typical Talmud, isn't it? He was a very good scientist. He was one of the last great scientist uh, scholars who was a general authorityist. You know, Russell Nelson had such an opportunity and he's just completely thrown it away, chasing after the stupid, filthy lucre instead of actual knowledge and light that uh, Father promised. It's such a shame. It's too bad. The body is not more truly the whole man than is the coat. The body. Even though we are the spirit children of God, there's no reason to believe that our physical bodies are any more than a temple made of stone. Uh, many church members believe that because we are the spirit children of God, there must be something distinctive, something, let's say, special about our physical bodies as well. And we, we kind of get the idea here. The thought seems to be, how can the spirit children of God dwell in bodies descended from beasts, you know? Oh, that's a horrible idea. The horror, the horror. And yet, that's what it is. <laughs> that's fascinating, isn't it? 
Several ideas have been advanced as to the supernatural origin of our physical bodies. The most common one among the LDS people are that Adam and Eve were resurrected beings and they were transplanted here from their celestial realms, or that they were our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, or that they were physical children of our Heavenly Father and Mother, or that they were mortal beings transplanted by God from some other terrestrial planet. In other words, none of the church leaders have a clue. No one knows. No one has received a revelation. Apparently, Jesus isn't up on his evolution knowledge, and so he's not going to say anything about it to anybody else either. I mean, that seems to be the impression that we we're getting here, isn't it? Jesus is completely silent. None of these ideas is supported by official pronunciation. So what? Every time they officially pronounce something, they have to throw it away 50, 60 years later by another prophet who said the former guy was just giving us his opinion. So what good is an official pronunciation, right? It's crazy how that works, isn't it? Some of these have been explicitly condemned by church leaders. Questions concerning Brigham's teaching on God and the Adam God and so on and so forth. See, they threw Brigham Young under the bus. Brigham Young claimed that was revealed to him by God himself, amazingly enough. But no, today's leaders know better, you know. What about all those tens of thousands of saints who also got the Holy Ghost testifying to them that Adam was their God and their father and the only father with whom they have to do? What about those testimonies? Oh, well, they were deceived. You see, that's where they can't go, but that's got to be the essence of the meaning of them throwing Brigham Young under the bus now, doesn't it? See how crazy Mormon leadership doctrine is? Of what value? Not much. I'd much rather stick with the scholars, and even they don't have it yet. So there are no scientific data at all to support any of these supernatural hypotheses. In fact, the body of accumulated scientific evidence stands against them. That's fascinating. So if our physical bodies are in some way special in that our ancestors' physical bodies came from some other plant or directly from God, then we could predict that the physical nature of our bodies should be in some way different from those of other life forms originating on this earth. So if we're aliens, we would have alien characteristics in our DNA, but we don't. All of our DNA matches the DNA sequencing and so on and so forth, the nucleotides of all the other types of life here on earth, because we are all literally interrelated. Plants and animals and insects, bugs, ooh, yes, we're all genetically related because, like Alan Watts says, we did not come to this earth. Everything comes out of this earth. That's a very profound insight that he had, that he has shared. So anyway, uh, so that's basically what I wanted to share. I'm not going to go into the rest of this. I'm not in a very comfortable spot. I'm trying to give you some real nice background to look at while you're listening to my voice. And uh, so I'm going to do a part two as well on this. The basic the basic theme that I am discovering for, through my own research is that the Mormon scholars, unfortunately for us, is they, uh, they more or less give us the impression that they have to agree with the brethren. And the brethren are just, I, there's no way I'm going to accept anything they say on evolution. 
They just simply don't have their act together at all yet, even though they are supposed to be the more inspired, uh, which is supposed to be able to turn out and help us out better. Now, the scholars are much more closer, but they still can't go too far. They cannot carry out the fullest implications of this science versus religion, of this evolution versus special creation, because it will go against some of the core doctrine. Uh, and that goes for Christianity, too. Well, that's just the way it works at this point. After all, uh, let's let's come to an understanding what is core doctrine? It's just someone else's opinion of someone's ancient opinion that just happened to make it into Scripture. <laughs> isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is wild how that works, isn't it? So, Anyway, I'm going to close out for now. So be good, do well, have fun. <laughs> Excuse me, what a way to end sneezing. So... <laughs> oh man, I didn't bring any uh, hoping I have snot blowing all over my face. I didn't bring any napkins so I apologize if it's gross. I don't think so. I can see my reflection of myself on my <laughs> screen. So anyway, boy, that's enough of that noise. That tells me I gotta quit. So stay tuned for part two. Um, I will try to do another video <laughs> part two uh, probably not later tonight but uh another night this week. So, uh, thanks for watching my Backyard Professor videos. A lot more to come down the pipe.